Chapter Thirteen of Riolaro, the Archipelago of Exiles by Godfrey Swevin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Imprisonment and Escape. He went on board, and I returned to my guide, whom I found greatly disturbed. An official spy had come down from the marble city, and this meant that a whole army of them in covered armor were in the neighborhood and on the alert. He had scarcely ears for an account of my interview with Garolesi till I reached the story of his blanching at the sight of a stranger. His alarm grew, and he was concocting a scheme for getting to my fireship, though he knew it would be almost impossible to pass through the cordon of state guards that was, he was certain, drawn around us. Just as dusk shuttled into dark he had matured his scheme, and we were about to put it into effect when the door of our room in the hostelry opened and a missive was delivered to each of us. We were invited by the monarch to return to the marble city, and sojourn with him in his palace. Nothing could be clearer than that the Brioles had received information of our movements and suspected that we were engaged in stirring the artisans and peasants to revolution. And this was a pleasant invitation to euthanasia. Our doom was fixed if we could find no other way out of the noose. Early in the morning a car of triumphal proportions drew up at our door and we were bowed by the town officials with great ceremony into it. It went off at funeral pace by a coast road to the marble city, accompanied by an escort of royal guards. It was plain from the faces of the wayfarers of the ruling class that there was something portentous in our procession, for they looked back at us with glances full of pity. My guide, who came to be more self-controlling in his manner and more confidential and intimate in his tone, told me how often he had feared such a result but they had followed their own diabolical style of letting him have complete freedom till he had become reckless, and now they had pounced upon him. He asked me, if I escaped, to make for Brulli, his native country, and inform the authorities of his fate. They would give me full protection and treat me with the greatest hospitality, I might be sure. He told me his own name, Blastimo, and said that the mention of it would turn all his relatives into my friends. But lest the devils should, with their usual pharisaic inhumanity, make their refined methods of torture take the place of euthanasia, he gave me a small nutful of a most potent drug, a pinch of which, small enough to be hidden under the nails, would launch me in a few seconds into the tide of unconsciousness that leads to death. In the palace we would be watched by a hundred eyes that we could never see. Unseen, unguessed at espionage was one of the secrets of the mysterious power that the bureaus had over all. They seemed to know almost what was transacted in the depths of the soul in the darkness of midnight. The only safeguard in the Isle of Liars, thus he translated the name, was the universal suspicion that tortured the marble citizens. None of them felt sure of even his nearest relative or closest friend, and if any chance of escape came to us, 
it would be through some official of the palace who was getting uneasy about his own fate we were welcomed at our destination with great and effusive ceremonies as if we were about to be enthroned and for days we seemed to be the centre of all its hospitalities we were fated and banqueted and amused in the most elaborate style and through the whole series of festivity and pomp we were without any apparent caution kept strictly apart so that we were not able to pass even a word the monarch showed himself greatly interested in me and asked me innumerable questions about my people and country being especially amused at my description of the use of steam in doing work and of the use of firearms his little six-year-old boy was even more entranced by my pictures of the steam engine and of our warfare he was the one weakness of his father he clung to my side especially when in disgrace and that was very often it was he who told me that my fireship was off the mouth of the estuary where i had landed it stimulated his curiosity to the utmost seeing a possible way of escape he kept begging the king to let him go to it but clearly the bureaus were against such a venture at last the child fell ill the physicians declared the illness to be one of the heart and after a time warned his father of its dangerous character if the boy were in any way thwarted he whined every day his old request that he might be taken on board my fireship the king pleaded with the heads of the bureaus to let him go and they at last grew alarmed too for he was the only heir to the throne and the father's life was by no means certified by the physicians as likely to be long they saw the risk of getting thrown out of power and they consented to the expedition but under the most stringent conditions i was to remain on shore whilst blastemo and the little prince should go on board with his father and a royal escort we set out and after much floundering in the mud and grappling with the current they swept over the bar under the guidance of a fisherman who knew every sandbank and could prevent such a mishap as befell me when i landed i had sent a note with them and i could see that the three were received on board with every sign of friendliness but the boats containing the escort drew out to a distance from the steamer everything seemed to go well for a time the sea was calm with a slight breath of ripple off the shore suddenly i saw a whiff of smoke shoot out from the bow of my yacht and with a loud report reverberating from the cliffs behind a ball landed in the midst of a troop of guards that was stationed to cut off my retreat towards the north the only possible way of escape on the other side was the river with its acres of mud and behind was the road to the city well guarded at all points the result was as sudden as the shot i had just time to collect my senses and look round and away on the highway i could see the tails of the guard in the wind another shot and another ploughed the earth or flapped into the mud and cleared the lowlands of every elephanion i soon realized the situation and quietly walked off to the north over long spit i made no attempt to run as if i were escaping but as i moved higher and higher on the rising ground 
I could see the shot strike the flat I had left. When I reached the highest part of the promontory, I found the reason for the demonstration. A falla lay in the offing, sheltered from sight of the retreating troops by the high bluff in which the spit terminated. Garlesi's instructions flashed into my mind, and I remembered that this was the point he had indicated for my safety if ever I needed to escape. I got over the ridge, and as I looked back I could see the sand occasionally pirouetting in the air, and I could hear a reverberation sound in the rear. I then ran as quickly as legs would carry me towards the shore. In a sheltered nook of quiet water lay a native boat, with the men sitting paddles in hand. They gave me the signal agreed upon, and I readily jumped on board. The canoe shot out from the rocks, and it was not too soon, for a troop recovering from their panic were making down the sheltered side of the spit, unnoticed by the yacht. And we were not out of reach when the first arrow sliced the water. The men redoubled their efforts, and only half a dozen missiles struck the boat before we were safe on board Garlesi's Falla. End of chapter 13